End of the line. Thanks, Dad. You hit in there, Gumdrop. I'm gonna give Peter the, uh, the dad talk. Don't let him intimidate you. Love you. Love you, Gumdrop. Have a safe flight. secrets of my own. Of all the reasons I didn't want my daughter to date. Peter, nothing is more important than family. You saved my daughter's life, and I could never forget something like that, so I'm going to give you one chance. Are you ready? You walk through those doors, you forget any of this happened, and don't you ever, ever interfere with my business again. Because if you do, I'll kill you and everybody you love. I'll kill you dead. That's what I'll do to protect my family, Pete. You understand? Hey, I just saved your life. Now what do you say? Thank you. You're welcome. Now, you go on in there, you show my daughter a good time. Okay. Just not too good. Welcome to the Superhero Cinephiles Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Constantine. And today I'm welcoming a new guest and a fellow podcaster, and that is Alex Marcus. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Um, I got my son here riding shotgun with me today because he's uh, he's getting a little bit fussy right before we sat down to record. But other than that, I'm good, and he seems to be content right now. Uh um, so before we get started talking about the movie, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Alex Marcus. I live in the United States. Uh, I have been podcasting for the last six years. Uh, first through my film podcast, Cinema Droz, where we have reviewed many a comic book movie uh, over the years. Um, and then uh, about three years ago, I started working for thepopbreak.com. I'm their podcast editor. I'm, I kind of supervise their entire podcast network. And uh, in that capacity, uh, about a year ago, started hosting a podcast with the editor-in-chief of that website, Bill Bodkin, called Bill vs. the MCU, where we, re- where we rewatch the first four phases of the MCU. We did all of that in 11 months. Uh, and, and on the 12th month in, in December, we did a big uh, Feige's Award special uh, for all the highlights and lowlights of the MCU. And now we're just kicking off our uh, second season where we're diving into the Defenders saga on Netflix. So we're reviewing select seasons of those <laughs> shows, Daredevil, uh, Jessica Jones, all that stuff. So you can find that podcast on uh, Pop Break Today, the podcast feed. So. Okay, awesome. Um, what got you started in, in podcasting? Well, I've been a listener of podcasts since uh, early 2009. I'm not ex- I'm not exactly the earliest of early adopters, but I definitely got into them uh, sooner than most people I knew. <laughs> for mm-hmm. for a number of years, I was like, "You guys have to check these podcasts out; they're really fun." And people would be like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, whatever." And then you know, all of a sudden, they took over the world. Um, but so I've just had a passion for the format for a really long time, and it was always exciting. Uh, to try to get a chance to do it myself. And when the opportunity came with a couple of friends to start a, a monthly film podcast, uh, I took it. And from there, it kind of opened up a lot of doors. So, 
Very cool. And so the podcast you're on now, uh, Bill versus the MCU, what brought up brought up that idea to do that podcast? Because it sounds just on, on paper, just the name of it sounds like it's um, you're dealing with someone who maybe wasn't uh, really into the MCU at first or had some comments about the MCU or, or something like that. So tell me what, yes. what the story is with that. So the title is sort of a play off of that kind of like classic like Daredevil versus or uh, Deadpool versus the Marvel Universe comic book series where he kind of like goes through and kills everybody. Um, and Marvel mm-hmm. has recycled that title for a couple of other characters in the last couple of years. Um, but it basically came from the fact that Bill Botkin, our editor in chief of the podpick.com, he hosts a weekly uh, just general culture podcast for the site called Socially Distanced. And whenever there's a Marvel Disney Plus show in session, he will review weekly the episodes that come out. Uh, But he was way behind on the films. And for Uh, a long time, I was like, you got to catch up on the films. And he kind of got burnt out on the Marvel movies around 2016. and was like, this is just too much to keep track of. I can't deal with it anymore. And he just kind of gave up. But then he was reviewing all of the all of the TV shows uh, without a lot of the context. So finally, one day I was like, look, you put me in charge of the podcasting network. And so I'm commissioning a a podcast where once a month I make you watch all of the Marvel movies in chronological order until you're caught up. (laughs) And so that's what we (laughs) did. Um, And he thanks me for it all the time because over the span of the year that we just completed, he kind of fell in love with them again. And now some of his favorite Marvel movies of all time are ones that we covered specifically for the site that he had not watched previously. So that was kind of the idea. And now we're going into the Defender Saga, which is a series of TV shows that he Mm. has never watched. And uh, we have definitely gotten a lot of feedback over the last year. Oh, you had to do Daredevil. You had to do Jessica Jones. So that's what we're doing. (laughs) So how how are you doing the 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 dare the defender stuff are you doing it one episode of the show per episode of your podcast are you doing a handful of episodes yeah so we decided to devote the first six months of the year to the defenders so what that means is uh for the for we're doing uh six episodes six monthly one a month uh and Mm -hmm. we're covering in one season each episode each episode for us so we're kind of our first episode was daredevil season one then we're doing Jessica Jones season one. We're not covering all of the seasons because, you know, quality is a bit uh, up and down on mm-hmm. those shows. Um, and the idea was we wanted to kind of prepare our audience and prepare Bill for these characters' possible introductions into the MCU over the next mm-hmm. few years. Because, we you know, uh, some of them might be popping up on Echo. We got the Daredevil Born Again show coming on uh, that is going to feature a number of these characters. So we wanted to hit at least the character introductions for all of the main Defenders uh, people mm-hmm. so that means daredevil season one daredevil season two where we meet the punisher um daredevil season three we're also going to be covering just because like that's the most recent daredevil season and we're going to be getting a new daredevil season kind of um but then we're also we're only doing the first ep- the first season of jessica jones we're only doing the first season of luke cage we're doing the defenders miniseries we're not doing any iron fist because i promised bill i wouldn't make him watch it <laughs> even <laughs> though i will say the second season of iron fist better than people say uh or at least yeah. expect um, I think it's much really... better. I'd also I'd also put a vote in for at least the Iron Fist episode of season two of Luke Cage because when he appeared on on um, on Luke Cage, I thought it was like the best that Finn Jones had done in the role. Yeah, we're probably not going to do that, but we will definitely talk about it. What we've been able to do, which has been kind of fun, is get guests to come on and talk about uh, their favorite characters along the way. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we definitely had 
we're in, planning on bringing on people who love these characters and can kind of help our audience know what they're missing if they don't mm-hmm. follow along with the whole schedule and, and decide to, you know, branch out. Um, so hopefully we'll get to cover it at least in those conversations. But mm-hmm. we'll get we'll definitely get to see Iron Fist in the Defenders at the very least. Right. Um, which, you know, he's like the fifth lead of that show. So I think that's mm-hmm. probably for the best. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about The Punisher? Are you going to cover any of those shows, even though it's it's tangentially connected to Defenders, but he wasn't part of, of that grouping? Yeah, so we decided that we're going to be meeting The Punisher pretty prominently in season two of Daredevil. And we felt like that was probably enough for our audience, uh, given the fact that the those those two seasons of The Punisher kind of have a pretty mixed reputation and it's not clear Mm -hmm. how much of them would actually, you know, factor into anything in the future. And we really, the plan was we wanted to get to our, in July, we're going to do a MCU check-in episode where we're going to talk about the most recent MCU installments that we've missed over the last few months, uh, like Ant-Man and Secret Invasion. And the hope was we'd be able to review Echo. So we were trying to finish Mm -hmm. up the miniseries by the time Echo came out. Now it seems like Echo might not come out until the end of the year. So that kind of like blew up the schedule a little bit, but we're just kind of sticking with the schedule we'd already decided because I'm a little bit in more retentive and I've already created a a podcast schedule for the next three years for this podcast. So (laughs) I definitely, uh, I want to stick with it, um, with the plan because after we finish the Defender saga, we're going to be diving into some Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, Mm -hmm. which I'm very excited about because I'm a huge Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. fan and Bill has, again, not watched any of it. So Mm -hmm. I can't wait. We're going to be curating that. We're going to be spending about eight months on Agents Mm -hmm. of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, select arcs across several Mm -hmm. seasons. So I'm guessing you're going to, I'm guessing you're going to skip Inhumans entirely. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. We are just skipping all of the Inhumans. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna be finding a way to to do some of the Agent Carter seasons uh, along the along with our Agents of Shield coverage, um, which I'm excited about because you know some mm-hmm. of those characters from that show uh, factor in unexpectedly significantly towards the end of Agents of Shield. So we're gonna cover that stuff. But yeah, Inhumans, the TV show, not getting covered in our in our <laughs> rundown. And honestly, a lot of the Inhuman stuff that happens on Agents of Shield is getting just skipped over. You probably a good a good bet, I'd say that was really when I started, you know, I, I became I was really excited about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. at first. And when they got into the Inhuman ser- series, that's when I just sort of was just kind of watching out of habit more than anything else. Yeah, I did those. go and see the Inhumans uh, premiere in IMAX in movie theaters. Uh, that was a mistake. <laughs> right. And, you know, that's what life is about. It's about learning from our mistakes. So I'm not going to yeah. do it again. <laughs> um, so what kind of was your uh, introduction to, um, to to superheroes and, and that kind of stuff? Were you a comics guy um, from way back or was it the, was, the movies and TV shows? Yeah, I was not a comics guy. I never have been a comics guy. I think I've only read one comic book in my whole life. And it was like a free mm-hmm. Iron Man comic that I got on my iPad for some reason at one point. Um, so not not a, a comics book person. I think a lo- like a lot of your guests, you know, I was born in the 90s. And for me, it was Batman, the animated series, Spider-Man, the animated series, X-Men, mm-hmm. the animated series, like that Fox lineup uh just totally hooked me as a kid and those were the stories that i fell in love with and it took a long time to even realize that they had anything to do with comic books because you know i just that was my entry point into that it was like watching those cartoons 
and them watching the movies once the movies came out a little bit later. And then, you know, in college, just when I was supposed to be writing papers, just spending hours on Wikipedia being like, well, wait, what was up with that thing that happened in that one X-Men cartoon? Oh, there's a whole comic book arc that I could read about on Mm -hmm. Wikipedia explaining what the deal was with that. So that kind of amplified my comics knowledge. And then, you know, I love the Geek History Lesson podcast, which is great about kind of covering uh, comic book content in a very thorough way. Um, and yeah, and then, you know, the modern movies as well. But yeah, so that's really the entry point for me. It was Batman first, and then it was X-Men and Spider-Man shortly thereafter that kind of hooked me into the whole superhero genre, along with the Power awesome. Rangers. I gotta, I gotta respect Power yep. Rangers. <laughs> that was, that was the uh, coolest show on TV when I was seven. And, you know. <laughs> absolutely. In fact, I gotta, I gotta plug my, uh, my buddy's show. Anthony Desiato hosts, uh, Summoning the Zords, uh, Power Rangers fan podcast. I did, I contributed to the artwork the cover artwork for that so oh, anyone's interested cool. in power ranger stuff yeah i think it's coming out every two weeks so that that show is it's a fairly new show it just came up like uh it's only got a few episodes so far but it's uh it's really good he's been on the show a few times so definitely check that out as well for anyone who's interested yeah in, in more power it's ranger definitely stuff. cooler to say that i'm that i got started on x-men and and spider-man but i would be lying if i didn't give some credit to power rangers because that was definitely my favorite of all of those shows back when i was a kid <laughs> I mean, I was at that age when Power Rangers came out where it was it was not cool to like Power Rangers in my age group. So I like had to it was it was I had to keep keep it secret from all my friends basically back then. (laughs) But but yeah, I definitely I definitely went through the Power Rangers phase. I definitely had all the the toys and stuff. And I live in Japan. So, you know, here it's Super Sentai. And whenever I'm in uh, any of these recycle shops, they have like the Super Sentai toys and stuff. So I always I always take a peek and see if they have any of the stuff that made it over to um, Power Rangers and (laughs) check the prices on them just out of curiosity. Yeah, well, that Super Sentai stuff is crazy because I remember like learning about in high school, like way after I Mm -hmm. should have that that was the Power Rangers, just a composite of a Japanese show and Mm -hmm. American super low budget show. (laughs) And that just like blew my mind in the moment. And then when you go back and watch, you're like, oh, oh, that's why there's so many industrial parks in, uh, you know, Southern California. (laughs) Now it all makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. And why the Yellow Ranger's costume didn't have a skirt while the Pink Rangers did, because the Pink Ranger in the in the Super Sentai was the only female in, in the team. Yes, yeah. In my head oh, at yeah. the time, I was just like, well, she's just the sporty girl, and that's the, yeah. girl, and that's the, <laughs> the girl that likes dresses, and then the sporty girl. Makes sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, anyway, uh, another thing I've, I do with, uh, with guests lately is I ask them... What are they kind of interested in? What's kind of grabbing their attention now? Not necessarily for your podcast or anything like that, because I know obviously you're you're into rewatching the MCU stuff for Bill vs. the MCU, but just in general, what kind of stuff are kind of grabbing is grabbing your interest now? It can be TV, movies, books, video games, comic. I know you're not a comic book guy, but but anything like that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the best movie of last year is Everything Everywhere All at Once. And that was definitely that's definitely on the top of my list of, of favorite things that I've seen in the last year. Um, I love that film. I'm it just is getting re-released in theaters because of all the awards uh, hype, and I'm excited to go back and watch it for a second time. Really wild to me that it's gotten so much Oscar attention just because I remember sitting in the theater in April being like wow that was an incredible movie that movie feels like it was designed explicitly for me and me alone and I can't imagine anyone else liking it as much as I do but I'm so glad that I like it and then like to see it go on where so many other people had such a deeply personal 
experience with the film and feeling similarly was very cool. Uh, and, you know, I love Michelle Yao. I've, I've loved her in a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm a Star Trek Discovery fan, and she's she is a iconic character on that show. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the, it's silly to name that as the first among um, <laughs> on her credits because <laughs> she's so accomplished. I mean, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, of course, is a, incredible. But yeah, so I'm very excited that that film continues to endure. And, uh, and yeah, it's definitely the best... It's definitely the best film that I've seen. In terms of TV, uh, Fleischman is in Trouble is a Hulu show that debuted uh, in December with Jesse Eisenberg and Lizzie Kaplan and Claire Danes and Adam Brody uh, that I just absolutely loved. It's a great kind of story about, you know, being in your 40s and kind of realizing that the life that you thought that you had isn't quite what you expected it to be. Um, that's how it starts out. Uh, but it progresses to some interesting places where it really plays with perspective. And and you realize that maybe Jesse Eisenberg, who plays the protagonist, isn't quite as honest of a protagonist as you might think. And, and he's maybe, uh, due to his own narcissism, kind of missing some of the key facts in his own life. Um, and you need to see it from other people's perspective to get a full understanding of what's going on there. And I just love stories that play with perspective like that and so that was a really uh exciting show that aired right at the end of last year that i think kind of went a little bit undersung so i keep trying to tell people to check it out everyone who have who i've recommended it to and actually watched are very happy that i did so so i definitely recommend people checking that out very cool um i i i'm so jealous that i have not yet to see everything everything everywhere all at once because it has not come to japan yet it it hasn't come out I think it's scheduled to come out on DVD here in the spring, uh, but I got to double check that. Um, so yeah, it's been annoying because everybody's been talking about it for the better part of a year now. I'm just like, God damn, I can't see it yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So you have to wait like literally a year to see it. That is, that's unfortunate because yeah. it's such an incredible film. It's really, it's just, it's so um, moving and emotional and relatable and silly and ridiculous mm. and creative and I was a big, the Daniels are the uh, directing team that directed that. And I was a big fan of their, of their um, prior film, Swiss Army Man, which is a movie that most people know is the one where Harry Potter played a farting corpse. And that is certainly a big part of the movie. And it's a ridiculous, but it also is like this very kind of uh, touching story about kind of like toxic masculinity and depression. And, and just like the fact, like the genius of these guys is that they're able to take the silly and absurd and ground it uh in Mm -hmm. a deeply emotional and relatable place that ends up telling these like incredible stories that i think really resonate with a modern audience in a way that you just you just don't see no one else makes movies like they do so i'm really (laughs) excited by this success and i can't wait to see what they do next yeah I'm, i'm so excited to see it i i hope it comes out here soon um, for my part, what I've been watching, what I just started, I just watched the first episode of, but, and I'm not sure where this is in, um, in the U S it here in Japan, it's on Disney plus as part of their, their star package. So in the U S I think it might be on Hulu, but it's a Japanese TV show called it's like a, like kind of like a horror mystery show called Gannibal. Um, and I just started watching that. Uh, so if anyone watched Tokyo Vice, uh, Sho Kasamatsu, who plays the, the young Yakuza in Tokyo Vice, he's in that. He plays like this really creepy role in that. And then um, it's also got main actor is Yuya Yagira, who was in um, the Japanese Unforgiven, which is one of my favorite Japanese movies ever. Um, he plays the main character. He plays this cop who's from like a metropolitan area who had some stuff happen in his past. And then he gets sent to this small town where there's he's like the only cop in the small town. 
and there's some weird stuff going on with the town. The last um, office, the last cop in that town, the show opens with him, like, you know, accusing people of being cannibals. And then he just kind of like disappears. And so then we pick up a few months later with this new guy coming in. Um, so I checked out the first episode because my wife is hooked on it. And I just really started getting interested in it at, based on that first episode. And I'm looking forward to watching more of it. So that that's my thing. I'm not sure if anyone's heard of that yet. I don't even know if, again, I don't know if it's available anywhere in the US, but if it's on, check Hulu first, and it's called Gannibal, just like Hannibal with a G instead. Okay, that sounds really cool. Yeah, I haven't heard of that. I'll have to check it out. Um, but now, let's go ahead and move into the discussion of the movie. So, you're coming on and really kind of completing the, this is the last of the Spider-Man movies that have been released so far outside of the Venom stuff. Um, that we have not covered. And that is, well, and aside, you know, the, the 1970s stuff with Nick Hammond as well. But, <laughs> uh, but as for the more recent stuff, um, you know, we've got, uh, at the time we're recording this, we are doing the first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire. That episode is in the, is in the queue to come out soon. Uh, okay. And now we've got, we've got you coming on to kind of round us out with uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. Well, I'm so, very happy to be here to talk about Spider-Man Homecoming because I think it, I go back and forth, but I, it's, if it's not my favorite of all the Spider-Man movies, it's, it's really neck and neck with what ends up being the favorite. So I'm really excited that I get to be the one to close out this journey um, for you. Yeah. My wife was asking me about this last night after we finished watching it. She's like, she's like, which, which Spider-Man movie is your favorite? And I was thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? I think it actually is Homecoming. I think this one definitely is my favorite of them. It. It's it's tough competition with Spider-Man 2, but I think the I think the way Holland plays both Peter Parker and Spider-Man, um, plus just the the Liz and MJ are just a lot more likable in this movie than MJ was in Spider-Man 2. Um, so I think those things just kind of elevate it just a little bit more, and that's that's why I think I would put this one at the top. Yeah, and for me, it's kind of like, I loved the Tobey Maguire movies when they came out. They were so game-changing for me, and, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the first one came out, I was 12 years old, and that was just like, wow, like, a movie could be like, and I just, I remember, like, being at my cousin's house, and everybody being like, wow, the Spider-Man movie, have you heard about it? Like, people who didn't care about, like, the cartoon or anything, superheroes, and mm-hmm. realizing, like, oh, wow, this is, like, a big deal, and seeing that take off was so cool, and, and watching the development of Spider-Man 2 in real time, I remember, like, looking up, like, entertainment weekly like getting those magazines and like reading the kind of like oh this is what to expect from the new movie and like how what they were thinking about and that was like one of the first times that i even had that experience as a, as a young person and so those movies are really close to me but when i rewatch them man there's just a lot of stuff about them that just don't work for me mm-hmm. like toby mcguire as peter parker i know people like to say like oh he's the best peter parker um but i think he's such a creep in these in those movies in a lot of ways like he has this weird entitlement thing with mj that just really doesn't age well i don't think like there's Mm -hmm. like this sort of like toxic nerd thing that is in there that i don't know if they realize how poorly that is aged given like you know the cultural climate that we live in now unfortunately so 
that really holds me back from be, from loving those movies as much. And, you know, the Andrew Garfield movies, you know, uh, you spent uh, many hours talking about both of those and God bless you for mm-hmm. that. There are things to admire about them. The, the, you know, the Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone connection is undeniable and incredible. And I just wish that they had made a sort of musical rom-com instead of a Spider-Man mm-hmm. movie, because I think we could all appreciate that more. Uh, <laughs> but so for me, it's like the, the Tom Holland movies are just far and away the best of of the of the set of um spider-man movies that we've gotten and uh and yeah it's it's kind of a neck and neck thing for me between homecoming and no way home it for a long time i was like homecoming is, is it and then the more that i rewatched no way home and i listened to your episode about it i know you have kind of mixed feelings on it mm. but it's just such an emotional wallop for me every time that i watch it and uh and i think ultimately it has higher highs but I really love this movie as well. And I think it's such a quintessential Spider-Man movie in a way that so few of the Spider-Man things we've gotten over the years actually is, which is part of why it's so great. I think with, with, um, with no way home, I, when I focus on the story, that's really when my mixed opinions start to come into it. But when I just sit down to watch it, like if, if we're talking about just as an experience, then I think no way home might be more entertaining. Um, but when it comes to, you know, when I'm thinking about the story and all that, then Homecoming um, becomes better. Um, but you made a good point. And I realized this last night when I was watching Homecoming. And every time I watch these movies, I end up comparing them in my head to all the other Spider-Man movies and all the other <laughs> Spider-Man performances. Because um, that's just so hard not to. Books. It's so hard <laughs> not to. Yeah. Um, and you made a good point about the the Tobey Maguire is Peter Parker thing, because I'm one of those people who does stand, and I stand by this, that I think Tobey Maguire was a great Peter Parker, not so great as Spider-Man. Andrew Garfield was the opposite. He was a great Spider-Man, not so great as Peter Parker. Although you made a good point, and this kind of, I realized this when I was thinking about comparing these movies in my head last night. Even though Tobey Maguire is a better Peter Parker, and even though Andrew Garfield is a better Spider-Man, for some reason, those movies... The, the Maguire movies, the 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 Spider-Man stuff was actually the stronger part of those movies, whereas in the Garfield movies, the Peter Parker stuff was the stronger part. But you had the the, the actors who were weaker at both those parts playing those characters. <laughs> and it was this weird kind of dichotomy, because, yeah, the, the, um, the Raimi movies, you know, God love them for everything they did. I remember, too, when I was, when that first one came out, it was my senior year in high school, and, you know, my friends and I, we'd always get together on weekends to watch, go to the movies or something like that. And uh, this is before like the internet really kind of blew up and made it easier to buy tickets online. So back then, you know, if we wanted to get tickets in advance, we'd have to go to the theater to buy them. And I remember just having to be the one in my friend's group who was trying to organize, like so many people wanted to see this movie. And it was, it was insane. We had like a group of like 20 people going to see Spider-Man, like in my I never would have imagined that would have happened before that movie came out. Um, which, like you said, just goes to show how big this movie, that movie was at the time. Um, and yeah, when I rewatch them now, you're right. There is that, that, that scene when he's, it, it's so, cause he's like gaslighting MJ the entire time of that movie when he says, I can't be with you, but let me read you poetry and talk about that. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> It's like, you know, they're trying to they're trying to do the thing that 
like the comic books I understand do mm-hmm. and, and other medium has done where it's like, I love you, but I can't be with you because it's, that's not it, you're I'll be putting you in danger. But in reality, like when you apply that to like an actual human being and human relationships, mm-hmm. it's incredibly toxic <laughs> to be yeah. like, I love you, but I can't be with you, but I don't want you to be with anybody else, but you can't be with me. Like, that's just not good in terms of, mm-hmm. and it's like, it works. I think on the page, it works within the conceit of the superhero thing because of, you know, our established things. But when you like actually think about them as real people, you're just like, no girl, get away from him. He's, mm-hmm. he's a nightmare. Marry, marry J. J. Jonah Jameson's son. He seems like a very nice man. That's another thing that annoys me about that movie is like John Jameson is the nicest guy on the planet, and he ends up getting even. He even he's even says, "Why don't you invite your friend Peter Parker to the wedding?" I'm like, Jesus Christ, this guy is way too nice. And then she ditches him at the altar. I'm like, that ending always irritates me every time I watch that movie. Um, (laughs) And. And to your point, yeah, I thought the the Garfield things, I thought they did a better job of handling that whole I love you, but I can't be with you thing because it came from her father. So he's conflicted about I want to respect your father's last wishes, but, you know, I, I, I still care about you. And I thought there's still criticisms to be had about the way they did that, but I still think they handled it in a much better way. Which again, it's yeah, weird. Not to not to interrupt you, but in that one, it's also there's such palpable chemistry between mm-hmm. those two actors that yeah. you can believe a lot more that like they know that it's wrong intellectually, but they feel so drawn to each other that they can't help it. Which I think the movie is smart to then try to build that into the central conceit of their of their relationship. But it's like mm-hmm. that works because those people, when they're on screen together, you're just like they, there's like a magnet between the two of them that you can't pull them away. Right? That is not the vibe between Toby <laughs> and Kirsten Absol- in that in those other movies. Oh, completely well said. Yeah, one hundred percent co-sign on that. And again, that's why it, it's so weird that you've got the the best Spider-Man stuff taking place in the movie with the actor who is not as good at the Spider-Man things, while the best Peter Parker stuff happens in the movie with the guy who's not as good at the Peter Parker stuff. And it's just it's <laughs> I, I really do wonder what would have happened if they had switched the actors for those those different those different franchises. Um, but the Tom Holland movie, Homecoming. Uh, well, before we jump too much into it, what what were your opinions about it when you first saw this movie? And then what were kind of your opinions when you watched again this time? Well, when I first saw this movie, I loved it. I, for one thing, when he appeared in uh, Civil War, I was like, perfect. Like, this is perfect Peter Parker, perfect Spider-Man. They nailed it. We have been really at that point. And I know in your Far From Home episode, you kind of talked about all the machinations behind the scenes of how that happened and why. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we need to get into that again. But I think the fan base, at least, was really enthusiastic about getting control of Spider-Man away from Sony at all costs and bringing them into the MCU, which at that point Mm -hmm. had like a flawless track record. And so when he appears and he steals Cap's shield, and he, and he has that scene in his apartment with Iron Man. It's just like it all feels so, so exactly what you what you hoped, like surpassed your wildest expectations. So the hype of then the very next year getting a Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland in the lead was really exciting. And I and I really liked him as an actor, even outside of Spider-Man. Like he's really good in The Lost City of Zed, uh, which is a kind of small James Gray movie from uh, just before 
he got cast in Spider-Man, um, where he plays Charlie Charlie Hunnam's son. Uh, he's really good in that. He's really good in The Impossible. So uh, he was a young actor that was already on my radar as like a person to watch out for. And getting him to 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 see him in this role and to see him just completely nail it in in Civil War made me so excited to see it. And I ended up watching it two and a half times opening weekend, <laughs> which is not <laughs> something that I typically do. Um, the half time was because I had to wake up early the next day. So I went and I stayed until the, until the ferry uh, set mm. piece. And then I left because I was like, I have to go to bed. Um, but yeah, so I loved this movie when it came out. I've watched it six times uh, in the, over the years and uh, I like it every single time. And I just think that it has this excellent balance, which I'm sure we'll get into of the kind of low stakes, like neighborhood stuff, the, the relatable teen stuff, and then the kind of superhero stuff. And that's like, mm-hmm. you want, all three of those things to hit when you're talking about a teen superhero like Peter Parker. And I feel like we've never really gotten that before mm. in a way that works outside of some of the cartoons and stuff. So it's just, I think it's just so well balanced and it just like, it has the, the room to breathe, to let scenes kind of linger, to really establish the world of the MCU from the ground, which I think is a really cool opportunity that they get to do here um, after spending a decade building it out on, from the top. And uh, yeah, there's just so many things I love. You know, Michael Keaton that is one of the best villains of all time in this movie. And of course, you know, he was Batman. So that's an extra level of fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could talk about this movie forever. What did you think about this movie when you first saw it? I loved it. Like, just like you, I was I was so impressed with Tom Holland in, in Civil War. And I'm just like, oh, my God, he gets it. He gets both those aspects of the character, because like we'd said before, Toby, I thought he had gotten the the Peter Parker stuff, but he wasn't so good at Spider-Man. And Andrew Garfield, God love him. The guy is, he's too charming to be Peter Parker, right? He's just, <laughs> and that was the biggest thing. I'm just like, it, you know, you'd mentioned the episodes we did with, uh, with Kellen Conley and, and Kelly even pointed out, he's like, yeah, he's like, yeah, you're looking at Peter Parker. Just like, man, I wish Peter was my friend. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> how you feel when you watch him in those movies. Cause he's, you cannot, you can't help but love Andrew Garfield in those movies. He's just, he's just such a, he's such a great, he just seems like such a great guy. And so when I'm, so it's hard to buy him as like the, the put upon outcast, the loner, um, unless he's doing it by choice. And whereas Tom Holland, he's got this whole, you know, he's got that whole nerdy youthful exuberance thing, but he's also got the humor and all that, which he does a very good job of making the humor seem nervous. Like, Andrew Garfield, he always seems super confident as as Spider-Man. And whereas Tom Holland, it feels like he's being humorous because he's covering up how terrified he is, which is one of the th- reasons why Spider-Man's always making jokes in the comics. So I love that he got that aspect of the character. So and when we actually when I actually saw Homecoming and you got to see him, I have some quibbles with some of the choices they made in regards to the supporting cast. Um but overall, I thought it was this great blending of those two aspects of it, because you can't do Spider-Man without also focusing on the Peter Parker aspect of it. And it's it's really hard in movies to to do that because you've got a you've got this limited run times. And I've always maintained that, honestly, I think the best way to handle Spider-Man would be in a TV series, because then you could actually let the relationship drama and the character interactions play out and breathe a little bit more because it's always been about that balancing act between the superhero stuff and the personal life. And 
you can't really do that in it, it's very difficult to do that in the movies. So, and I think that was the the weakness of the the Raimi films and also the Mark Webb films, which is like I was saying, you had some great Spider Man stuff in the Raimi films, you had some great Peter Parker stuff in the Webb films, but they kind of dropped the ball on the other stuff. Whereas this one, it found that sweet spot. It was able to bring those two sides of his life together in a way that actually worked very well and didn't feel contrived, surprisingly. Yeah, and I think it's a credit to the, I mean, this is a movie that has like six credited screenwriters, which is usually mm-hmm. a disaster when it comes to studio movies. That means that, you know, they're running through a bunch of different drafts of the script and people are pulling things out and taking th- and putting things in. And usually it just becomes kind of like a zombie movie where you're just like, what is even happening? Like, they definitely lost the thread. And in this movie, like, it all works. Like, they kept all of the best pieces, I guess, because it all feels like a one coherent vision of who this character is. And I mean, I'm sure that's a credit to to Feige most of all as the producer on this but uh I just think like when we talk about you know the balance of the two Peters and Peter and Spider-Man and how it works so well here something that jumps out to me is there's a scene when he is kind of investigating the the criminal element in the suburbs Mm -hmm. for the first time and they're um he's observing and then they his phone goes off which is like classic kind of like teen comedy sort of situation like oh no he has a silly ringtone and and whatever and then and then they like pull a gun on on donald glover thinking that he's behind the kind of that he's double crossed them in some way and peter just jumps down says like hey if you're gonna pull a gun put it on me like if you're gonna shoot somebody shoot me like without even thinking just like that instinct of like i'm a hero i need to de-escalate the situation and i'm gonna take the bullet if i need to perfect fast forward to like the fi- the third act of the movie he's standing next to liz his love interest and he wants to tell her that he likes her and he is so terrified of doing that that he can't even look her in the face he has to kind of like mm-hmm. look forward as he's standing next to her and then and it just like that's what spider-man is right like he can jump in front of a bullet without thinking but he can't tell a girl that he likes her by looking at her in the eyes because he's too nervous because he's still just a kid and it's like Mm -hmm. it's so hard to make that feel real and grounded and not feel contrived or silly and i think it helps that tom holland is like 21 when he 22 when he's making these movies and he feels like a teenager Mm -hmm. in a way that the other spider-men haven't they're like you know they get cast when they're 25 they're 28 by the time they make the first movie they feel like they're 35 you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i think that it really helps but it also just he manages to put all of that together and make it feel like one coherent person in a way that shouldn't work. And it does. And it does excellently. Well, yeah, I mean, the the high school stuff, they use it because the high school stuff, it was, you know, almost a footnote in the first movie, right? You have him, he's, he's, he's in high school, just basically in that opening sequence. It's like, you know, what, 15, 20 minutes long. And then after that, he's in college. And, in the Amazing Spider-Man movies, you know, the first one, he was in high school the whole time, and then he graduated to the beginning of the second movie, but they don't really use the high school stuff to that great effect. Whereas this one, they, I've always described this movie as like if John Hughes directed a, a superhero movie, because that's what it feels like. They really use that high school aspect of it to a lot of great effect in this. Uh, and, and yeah, like, like you said, like that that scene when he's well also what i love about his interactions with um donald glover who um for anyone who doesn't know the recognize the character's name 
he, he, his name's Aaron Davis, and he mentions he's got a nephew. He's Miles Morales' uncle. Uh, and if you've watched Into the Spider-Verse, that, that character is the one who becomes the Prowler in that movie. Yeah. Um, and actually, not to interrupt, but they even have like an Easter egg when Peter is looking at him through his like heads-up display, where it literally, it says on the screen that his codename, his alias, is the Prowler. Uh, oh, okay. So I, didn't, like, I missed that. Yeah. So it's like a little bit of an Easter egg that like that is like he's already established as that in this world. Um, you know, we don't really ever get to see him again, so it doesn't really add up to much. But who knows in the future, he might pop back mm-hmm. up. So but it's a fun it's a fun Easter egg. Well, also, as um as a note, as another Easter egg, the whole reason Miles Morales was created was actually because of Donald Glover, because mm-hmm. back when they were planning the amazing spider-man mark bernardin who uh co-hosts uh fat men beyond with kevin smith and is a screenwriter in his own right he had wrote this article saying that there's no reason why spider-man can't be black right he comes from he's been raised by his aunt and uncle his parents are out of the picture he grew up in queens he's you know from a lower socioeconomic background he could ease his story could easily be the story of a black kid from queens and donald glover was a huge Spider-Man fan and he had actually, you know, there was a big internet campaign to cast him as Spider-Man even so much so that in community, there's an episode where he's wearing like Spider-Man pajamas or something. It's kind of a nod to that. Mm-hmm. And then Brian Michael Bendis, who was writing ultimate Spider-Man at the time, in the comics, he took a cue from that. And then he decided, well, we've got Peter Parker in the main universe. This is the ultimate universe. So let's kill Peter Parker and let's bring in a new Spider-Man and we'll make him black. And that ended up being Miles Morales. So it's really cool that all of this stuff comes full circle. And, you know, we get to have Donald Glover playing some role in connection to Miles Morales in the in the movies as well. Yeah, it's Um, I mean, in the moment, that was so exciting. And it's it's funny because like this movie comes out in 2017 and I feel like by 2018, Donald Glover had reached like a whole nother threshold mm-hmm. of kind of superstardom with like, you know, Atlanta uh, becoming one of the most celebrated television series of the decade. And, you know, his Childish Gambino um, music career really taking off in a serious way, whereas before it was kind of like a little bit of a joke mm-hmm. <laughs> um, during his community days. And like that he just, you know, and then he was in a Star Wars movie and he just kind of became king of the world um, for a couple years there. And so it was like, this was probably the last time he could have shown up in a Spider-Man movie movie as a cameo um Mm -hmm. without it you know without it feeling very different so it's it's funny to look back at it now and be like oh yeah they did this because they wanted to like there was a fan campaign to make him spider-man like it's Mm -hmm. it's hard to even remember that that because he's his public persona has changed so much since then it's it's funny you mentioned the childish gambino thing is funny because every time we when we were watching this movie my wife was like she's like oh childish gambino i'm like who? I'm like, oh, right, right Donald Glover. Because <laughs> I, I don't know him at all from his music. I know him yeah. as an actor. I know him from community and all that. So whenever we see him in something, she's like, oh, that's Childish Gambino. And me, I'm like, that's Donald Glover. Um, <laughs> that's Troy and, from but, Community. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's who I, he's always going to be Troy from Community for me. That That's how I, who I always associate him with. Um, but I, one of the things I love about that scene when Peter goes to interrogate him with the enhanced interrogation mode is what he's just so obviously not intimidating at all. And, and, you know, and Davis is not having any of it. Like he slams the trunk door and then, and Peter flinches. And he's like, he's like, this is your first time doing this. Right. And he's like, he's like, you've got to get better at this part of the job. And that's another thing I love is that, you know, it shows that, you know, Peter, Peter's still a kid. He does. He's just making this up as he goes along. He doesn't really know what he's doing. And I thought that scene really kind of captured that idea. 
Yeah, and it's and I feel like it's it's such a smartly written movie in that respect where you start out like Peter has been part of this like massive superhero melee fight in Civil War, right? And he's like, mm-hmm. I'm one of the Avengers now. I just need to wait for Tony Stark to call. I'm ready for this. I'm so at one point he literally says like I'm so beyond high school right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um and then of course that that line is is received with a smash cut to him being sent to detention for skipping out on class. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. like he's not, right? And that's the whole tension of this movie is that and it's and it's so relatable, I think, if you remember being a teenager and if you have teenagers in your life, you will know this that there is just this thing where like they feel like they are adults and they should be treated like adults and yet they aren't adults in a very real way right they just Mm -hmm. don't they have a lot of the things that adults have but they don't have a handle on their impulse control right they don't have a handle on they just don't have the experience that you need to be put in adult situations yet and like the only way you can really gain that experience is by failing and in Mm -hmm. this movie we get to see spider-man fail a lot and i think that's really brave of them because in a superhero movie you know the superhero is supposed to win he's supposed to be cool and he's supposed to be tough and he's supposed to win all of the fights and maybe one thing goes wrong at the end of the second act to kind of raise the stakes for the for the act three but otherwise like that's what a superhero movie is supposed to be and in this movie he's failing constantly he's making mistakes constantly his heart is in the right place but he's constantly doing the wrong thing but every mm-hmm. time that he does the wrong thing he's learning from those experiences to the point where when he's in the climax he is becoming the person that he needs to be to finally beat win beat the vulture and save the day and i think mm. that that's just so smart it's so well written and that that narrative progression is so is it's exactly what you want from a teen superhero and i mm-hmm. just think it's really impressive because it's absolutely not the sort of thing that we got in previous spider-man movies absolutely yeah um and uh I, I think this movie also, it does a great job of utilizing the different aspects and what's been established of the MCU to be get up until this point. Because in the comics, when, when Spider-Man came out, right, you had uh, the Fantastic Four were already established. And so he, and I was getting flashbacks to some of those old, early Lee Dicko issues when he's like fantasizing about joining the Fantastic Four. And he's like going and auditioning to them in a very kind of like, you know, dickish kind of way. And I'm like, and one of the things that drives me nuts about this movie is a lot of the discourse around it. Like Spidey Twitter is infuriating <laughs> because it's just like, they seem to hate everything involving Spider-Man, which is just ridiculous. And a lot of the complaints about this movie in particular, I think are kind of misplaced. Like they, you know, one of the things they say is like, Oh, well, you know, Peter cares more about being an Avenger than about responsibility. I'm like, well, one of the through lines about, every single pretty much every single spider-man story is he's constantly relearning that lesson about power and responsibility it's never been like he's always responsible all the time peter's always screwing up he's always making the wrong choice and then having to fix it later and i thought this movie completely played into that he's a kid of he Mm -hmm. thinks he's being responsible when he goes to this to the Staten Island Ferry and tries to break up that arms deal and like 
uh, ignores his his aunt and ignores Tony. He thinks he's being responsible. He thinks this is the right. most responsible choice that I could make in this situation. Anything else would be irresponsible. How could I not try to save the day? And the problem is not that he's being irresponsible. The pro- problem is that he's not thinking through his actions because he's right. 15 years old. Of course, he's not thinking through his actions, right? Yeah. He's just so overeager. He's constantly like over his skis on stuff. And that is just so exactly what a teenage superhero who really cares about responsibility would mm. act like because he's overestimating his own ability to handle the situation he's not trying to be reckless he's not he's he doesn't leave the uh, the room for him to be reckless in the situation because he's Mm -hmm. like no i'm i'll handle this i'm gonna be i'm the best person for this situation i'm going to solve the problem and it's like oh no you just made the problem so much worse Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i think that they just a lot of that also is it's in the writing, but it's also in Tom Holland's performance. You never feel like his heart is not in the right place, right? He always feels like he's trying to do the right thing. And like when it comes mm. to the Avengers thing, it's like that's him not necessarily not caring about his community or anything else. That's him being like, I'm ready to be a real superhero. So that mm-hmm. way I could really make a difference because he feels that sense of responsibility. There's an urgency to wanting to be on that stage because he feels like that's what he needs to do in order to help the most people. It's not the vanity of it, but there is a little bit of vanity because he's also a teenager. And so it's all gets yeah. kind of like mixed in. And I think that that is exactly right. I think that's the perfect way to use this character. I agree. I, I agree 100%. In fact, that scene at when he leaves the room, I love, I didn't realize it before, but that is, that is such a great quintessential Spider-Man moment. And, and you know, they do, a, I mean, even me is like, you know, I'm almost 40 and I watch this movie and it, it reminds me of what it was like to be in high school. Like I'm, you know, I remember those times when you were out on a school trip and you were sneaking out of the room to go to the pool and all that with, with the other, with the other classmates and all that. And I remember those things. I remember those, you know, and, you know, watching him sneak out and then look in and see them all in the pool and just kind of like being wistful. And it's that right there. It's like the Spider-Man while he's dressed in the costume. Like that is perfect Spider-Man right there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I don't know how you're a lifelong Spider-Man fan and you don't recognize that that is perfect spider-man you know exactly. that is the tension of the character he's he has a line later where he just he says just a typical homecoming on the outside of an invisible jet fighting my girlfriend's dad right like that's what the character is and this yeah. movie captures that perfectly that's a good transition because i did want to talk about uh michael keaton's vulture next um i think like you know i was also thinking comparing in my head like different spider-man villains we've seen so far and <clears throat> with the exception of probably Dr. Octopus, I think the MCU movies have done, given us the best interpretation of these villains and like what they did with Vulture in this movie or Mysterio in the next one, like and Vulture, especially I thought it was, it was brilliant to use something that actually connects to the character's name, right? He's, he's scavenging for all these, these parts and stuff like that. Um, make him a literal scavenger. And having Michael Keaton play that part. It's just, it's perfect. And Vulture in the comics never had a whole lot of depth, but they bring so much depth to that character in this movie and connecting it way back to the first movie and the, the first Avengers movie and the Chitauri invasion and all this stuff with damage control and the whole class struggle ish thing. All of that was done. Oh my God. It, it's so well done in this movie. 
Yeah, and I think Michael Keaton as an actor is just obviously extremely talented, and he's Mm -hmm. able to bring a lot of gravity to the role, a lot of relatability to the role. He feels like a very accessible character. You really want to root for him, even when he's making the wrong choice, right? You understand where he's coming from. And he also feels believably as like Peter's girlfriend's dad, too, and just Mm -hmm. like the normal menace of that experience, just going to your girlfriend's house uh, and having to deal with their dad being kind of like, I'm joking, but I'm not, you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. vibe like he plays that perfectly too and then of course like as that scene escalates it becomes this like incredibly heightened comic booky version of of what that would be but yeah the choice to do that with the vulture which is really you know i mean again i didn't read the comic books maybe he has some incredible arcs in the comics that i'm not familiar with but uh i remember him from the 90s cartoon and i remember like in the 90s cartoon he was positioned as felicia hardy's dad which i don't think is true in the comic books i think that was an adaptation choice um but i remember he mostly was just around in this like big epic multi-part story where he was trying to like use science and an ancient Mm -hmm. like relic to make him be young again and that's like all he cared about um that is not interesting from a storytelling perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember he was going to be the villain in Spider-Man 4 and he was going to be John Malkovich and it was like all set and ready to go. And and um, and then that movie fell apart after, you know, it got greenlit because Spider-Man 3 was such a huge success and then it fell apart quickly thereafter when everyone realized like, oh no, actually people hate this movie even though it made a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was always like, I don't really want to see the Vulture. And so then for when they said, okay, well, it's going to be the Vulture, but it's going to be Michael Keaton. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to see Michael Keaton in this. I'll see what he does with this character, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be a very interesting role. And what they do with him is just, it's just great. It works so well mm-hmm. as sort of like working class version of shadow self to Tony Stark and the impact that that has on, on Peter and, and like the twist is excellent. Uh, what was mm-hmm. your experience with the twist when you first saw it? Oh, and I'm talking about the first time I saw this movie. Man, that twist had me jumping out of my seat. I'm like, holy sh-. Like, I was not <laughs> expecting that. Not at all. And and it's just such a... There's this old joke about, about the Spider-Man comic books. Like, if you want to be... Um, the best way to be a Spider-Man villain is to be is to know Peter Parker because every single <laughs> one of his villains comes from his personal life in some way. Uh, and... And, you know, it's a contrived thing about about Spider-Man comic books and stuff, but I thought it worked so well. And they do that here, like, but it works so well in this movie. And just that that twist of like that. It's a perfect way to illustrate that, you know, using superhero, being a superhero and tying it into into high school. Um, I've talked about this before, but one of the things I loved about about Buffy was those early seasons where they really leaned into that metaphor of high school is a horror movie and they they did different aspects of it trying to find horror movie twists on these typical high school tropes and i thought doing that with the superhero movie and what they do here where you know that idea of like oh my god the greatest villain you're ever going to face is your girlfriend's dad and then having that being where he is actually the super villain of the story too <laughs> i mean that is my favorite sequence in this movie bar none because and that is the creepiest sequence in probably any mcu movie is is that scene where you know he's he's there in the the house and he's talking to Michael Keaton and he's and Michael Keaton's waving the knife around and stuff and just and Michael Keaton's just the look on his face in general he looks like a creepy guy in general like if I was going to you know when I was if I was a teenager and I was going to pick up my girlfriend and that guy answered the door I'd be creeped out too even if he if I didn't know he was a super villain. <laughs> 
No, absolutely. But what I like about it is that it it's just on the right side of believability for mm-hmm. like a kind of a dad who's trying to kind of like scare his girlfriend, his his daughter's boyfriend a little bit, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't tip over the line too much. Like there's a way to play it where it's like you know where like it's Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn, for instance. Mm-hmm. Like that man is is like a lunatic from beginning to end. Like you're not a, you're never mm-hmm. surprised when it turns out he's he's the guy on the glider running around throwing bombs at people. <laughs> but yeah. with, with with Michael Keaton, it's like this feels like a dad who's trying to intimidate his his daughter's boyfriend and doing a good job. And then it turns in the car mm-hmm. to when he starts to put the pieces together. And then he feels like not just a dad, but a supervillain. And it's like, mm-hmm. and that transition is just perfect. And it's when I was masterful. watching it this time around, I noticed that there's like, they do this thing where like, you know, he's asking questions, they're in the car and every little bit of information is just like, hmm, that's that's interesting. Oh, you know Spider-Man. Oh, you weren't in the in the elevator with everybody in DC. Mm-hmm. Like and they're like, hmm, okay. And you see it kind of putting together, putting it together. And then when he finally realizes it, which is a great touch that I never noticed before, he's sitting at the light and the light turns green. It's it, it's mm-hmm. red while he's figuring things out and then it turns green which is not only like oh it's a go i realized it but also like green is his like superhero supervillain color right so the Mm -hmm. green flashes across his face and he like looks like the vulture now in a way and it's just like it's just this that attention to detail is so fun and it's really this film is just so uh full of things that you really appreciate more and more the more times you watch it it's Mm -hmm. that real rewatchability value I love how, yeah, he does so much with this performance. Like, I love that that scene in the house. Like you said, it's just the typical, you know, you know, dad is trying to is trying to needle his his girlfriend's his daughter's boyfriend, and just like the little like the little setups he gives him. Like he's like, you look a little bit pale, Pete. You want a drink? You want a scotch or a bourbon or something? He's like, no, I'm not old. He's like, that's the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> like look at her. Doesn't she look beautiful? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah also the right answer good job he's like i'm gonna be your show like it's just like he's he's playing it perfectly because he is just you know you can tell that he's just doing this to 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 mess with peter he's just having fun with them a little bit mm, and then when, the, when pedro it, yeah, yeah calling him pedro and all that <laughs> and then when it turns when he's in the car and michael keaton actually he brings a real sincerity to the way he deals with peter like he says he says to him when he, you know, after they drop, drop her off and he turns to him with the gun and he's like, he's like, you know, he's like, I, I admire what you're doing. I admire that you're playing it close to the vest. You saved my daughter's life. I'm not going to forget that. So I'm going to give you a way out. Like all of that makes, it makes perfect sense why he would decide to let Peter go in that moment. He's like, look, you're a kid. You don't really understand what's going on here. So I'm giving you one chance to leave this alone. And you get the feeling even when, you know, Pete comes to him in the lair and, you know, he's just kind of talking to him very casually. You get the feeling that, you know, Adrian actually does have some admiration and respect for Peter. I thought they did a good job of playing that. Yeah, I fully agree. And and like they get away with the sort of like, we're not so different, you and I villain mm-hmm. monologue, which is like maybe the most cliche thing you could do in a comic book movie or action mm-hmm. movie of all time at this point. And yet it just, you know, when you have two good actors who get to deliver those lines, like they make it feel real and they make it feel vibrant and they make it feel like it's part of what the movie is actually trying to communicate, not just a, a really hacky cliche. So it's it's impressive. And I will say another thing about like the develop the development of this movie in relation to its villains. You know, this movie obviously it was primarily produced by Marvel 
right? Marvel mm. Studios. But it had some Sony input. I feel like the Sony input kind of gets a little bit underplayed now. But it, it was definitely a collaborative experience. And mm-hmm. one of the things that Sony apparently was really pushing Marvel to do is to like include more villains, right? We can't just have one villain. And I remember when we were getting news about this movie before it came out of like, oh, it's not just going to be the Vulture. It's going to have the Shocker. No, it's going to have two Shockers. And it's going to have the Tinkerer. It's going to have the Scorpion. And, and I remember thinking like, oh, no, they're doing it again. They're overloading this movie with villains and plots and things that it's going to be a disaster. And then when you watch the movie, it just works perfectly because it's like mm-hmm. they they never lose track of the story that they're telling, which is so key when you're talking about populating your world. And so it never feels like, oh, here's every villain has their own story and their own arc and their own thing and they have to come together and, and you're constantly dividing your attention. No, instead, all of these comic book characters that that audiences have more or less familiarity with, depending on where they're coming in with the with the, you know, with the mm-hmm. property. Um, they are able to just use these characters to populate the world and flesh out the world to make it feel real and to make it feel like it's full of different interesting types of people who are just on the edges and working on the corners of the screen. And that ends up being an enriching experience. You know, we have that with the teen characters too. There's lots of teen mm-hmm. characters who are like, comic book fans know their names but here they're just there to support peter and support Mm -hmm. his story like everything is working towards one goal which is to tell this specific story about peter learning how to become a superhero on his own right and respect his limits and make friends and and you know tackle the bad guy without losing who he is right that's the Mm -hmm. point of this story and every single piece of it works towards that and it's really impressive that they pull that off I'm glad you mentioned the the other villains because I did want to talk about that. And I think Marvel did something smart where they where they when they approached those other villains because not every Spider-Man villain is on the level of like a Doctor Octopus or a Green Goblin. So like you combine or Green Rhino, Goblin or no, well, I mean Rhino. I'd say he, yeah, yeah. The exact Rhino's exactly what I'm thinking of because you know I thought yeah. I remember people were complaining about. Um, uh, Rhino and Amazing Spider-Man 2 because, they're, oh, they're throwing too many villains in there. I actually thought he worked fine in that small role he had in that because he's just this, you know, this small side villain that, so it kind of gives gives you this feeling of this is the kind of stuff Peter deals with every day as opposed to every two years a new villain pops up. Um, uh-huh. So I really think that it, it helps out that way to show that it shows you that, you know, he's dealing with these different threats all the time it's not just every two years one big villain pops up and that's who he has to deal with so i think that's a i thought that's that they did that pretty well in that movie um and in this one too you know you're not going to have a movie where the shocker is the headlining villain or where the scorpion (laughs) is the headlining villain so or the tinkerer right so working them into the the into these smaller roles in this movie i thought was a really smart choice and it gives the fans of the comic books being like, oh, that's the Shocker. Oh, that's the Tinkerer. All that made a lot of, I thought that was all really well done. Yeah, I agree. And I also think like they actually made the Vulture look intimidating and scary, mm-hmm. which is oh, yeah. incredible because I mean, again, I don't see the comic book. I don't know. Maybe there's other iterations of his costuming in the comic books that looks scarier, but I know from the cartoon that I watched that he is just this old man in a green kind of like jets, like mechanized mm. jet suit with like actual feather wings attached. And he looks completely ridiculous. <laughs> and mm-hmm. here, they give him like this bomber jacket look that he's kind of like in a foot in a flight suit, but kind of not. And he does literally have what like he gets the kind of like wing kind of breastplate 
still, but like within the context of the bomber jacket. And he gets this like mask that is, he genuinely looks imposing and intimidating. Mm. And it's like, how did you make the vulture scary? That's insane. They really, it's, it's really impressive. The kind of uh, production design that they went into and costume design that went into making that guy actually work as a cinematic villain. Oh yeah. I thought the working in the fur collar and when he has it zipped up, because you know, the vultures classic comic, costume in the comics it does have like this fur collar around it just like a vault so i thought that was a nice little touch it's like oh we're we're adding just that little thing to connect it to the comic books and it works very well like you said in the context of that bomber jacket um the shocker too right same idea with him with like the yellow sleeves and all that that's a nod to his look in the comics so all that stuff or you know we don't see the scorpion in costume or anything but we see it you know he's got the tattoo on his on his neck and all that so we get so we know who he is so Again, all that stuff works very well. Um, you'd mentioned the supporting cast, and I want to talk a little bit about them because I thought the supporting cast works so well in this movie, although I did find myself wondering why they kind of chose the the characters they did because Ned Leeds in the comics was never really... like he, Him and Peter were friends, but they were never like... He's almost like written as like a Harry Osborn type in in this movie and also flash too he's and again i think i think these actors did a great job i'm not dissing their performances anyway but i do think it it's an interesting disconnect because i realized this when we were watch when i was watching far from home that they kind of gave they kind of combined flash thompson and harry osborne into one character in this movie where he's like this rival of peter's but he's also this you know this kid from this rich family who's kind of ignored by his parents that that's Harry Osborne all over it. So I thought that was an interesting thing where then they take, you know, the friendship aspect of Harry Osborne and then they mix it with gank from, uh, who's miles Morales's best friend in those comic books. And they combine it. And he's also kind of like an overweight guy in, in the miles Morales comics and they combine it and give him this random name from Peter's supporting cast in that. So I thought those were some interesting little twists. They came and I, and they're not bad. It's just interesting. And I'm just, I, I kind of wish I was there in the meetings to figure out like, what was your thought process to get from that point and these characters to what you ended up with in the movie? Yeah, I think, you know, I think they've spoken about it a little bit. And I think that what it is, is that if Peter were alive today in a slightly mm -hmm. heightened universe, right, he would be going to a uh, science high school in the city and that would and if it was a science high school in the city especially in queens it would be a very diverse uh, community of like nerdy people a variety of different statuses and cultures and and um i think that they wanted his high school to reflect that and mm -hmm. i think that they do that really well and i think what is true is that spider-man's uh, high school set in the comic books back from the 60s is not really reflective of what a high a, right. like a science tech high school in Queens would look like in in mm. 2017 right it just isn't um, but Miles's high school team is a little bit more and so I think the idea to kind of like pull Genki from the Miles uh, storyline but just give him a uh, Peter uh, relative name mm -hmm. uh, is probably the most craven and thing that they did from a like adaptation choice, but I think it also works the best. So it's hard mm -hmm. to argue with, with the flash thing. 
like I didn't go to a, a science tech school, but I did go to a prep school in this in right around the same area that uh, he is living in. And that was exactly what the bullies were like in my prep school. Mm-hmm. It was like a high status academic achieving um, non-white person with rich parents who were not attentive and put a lot of pressure on them. And so they let it out by being mean to everybody else. So mm-hmm. for me, I was like, that's perfect. That's exactly what the bully would be like today. It wouldn't make any sense for him to be this blonde haired, blue eyed, six foot tall jock playing you know Mm -hmm. football on the quad like that doesn't it that doesn't make any sense but having him be Mm -hmm. this where the way that tony plays him is perfect and Mm -hmm. i love that and i don't i don't necessarily think that they're trying to merge him with the harry osborne thing i think they just in the first movie they really established him as this rich kid who's mean to everybody and then in the second movie they were like well well let's dig slightly deeper to say well why is he mean to any everybody and Mm -hmm. The, in the first movie, you get this sort of sense of he feels intellectually insecure because he knows Peter is smarter than him. And in the second movie, you get a little bit more of like, oh, and also his parents don't really seem to care very much about him. But I don't know if that necessarily has to be a specific Harry Osborne trait. Uh, you know, I think that that's true of a lot of people in that situation. So I really love the adaptation choices, and I think it really works. And I think like Betty Brandt is really fun in these movies as a character who like may or may not resemble herself in the comic books, but I think works really well as part of this ensemble and like Liz Allen is a great uh the adaptation choice here and then you know the MJ of it all I think mm-hmm. the way that they see MJ in this movie and then allow it to flourish later is just so confident in a way mm-hmm. that so- especially Sony Spider-Man movies rarely are usually they have this feeling of like we need to put everything we possibly can into these movies so that way everybody pays attention to them and there's like a lot of insecurity there and I think there's such confidence to be like hey, we're going to cast Zendaya who's a pretty big star less of a big star in 2017 than she is now but she was still mm-hmm. a pretty big deal then and we're just going to have her kind of like on the corner like on the edges of scenes just like hanging around she's Michelle we don't really know what her deal is and she constantly keeps like popping up and like she's clearly watching peter but we don't really but acting like she doesn't care when clearly she does you know and mm-hmm. then and then and you know far from home obviously well now she's mj and she's his love interest and and her this great love and everything else but i really admire the way that they play that yeah i thought um i thought the mj stuff i feel like zendaya was a much better reflection of mj in far from home and no way home um like she actually she felt there you could see aspects of that character come through her performance in those two movies i felt um in comparison to this one where like you said she's just kind of like there in the in the background she's there in the sides here and her performance is great but it didn't really feel like mj to me um so when at the end when she says oh you know my friends call me mj i'm like oh so i guess this is our mj okay didn't see that coming um and yeah you make you make good points and you're right Sorry, go ahead. I'm curious if that changed at all for you watching this movie now, having seen the other ones. Because I remember at the time feeling a little bit random. And then Mm -hmm. watching it now, having seen the whole arc and seeing the progression, it working a lot better for me and me realizing kind of the seeds that they were laying in more subtly in a way that I don't necessarily think I picked up on initially on the Mm -hmm. first couple of viewings. I'm curious if you have a similar experience. I didn't really pick up on any of that for not for me i didn't really pick up any of that like i just i just think she's much better utilized in the other films um i did like the choice of starting off with liz in this movie and i think and liz has had connections to supervillains in the comic book so i think connecting her to to vulture of all of peter's supporting cast i think she's the one who feels most like a character from the comics like and and even i i think there are some aspects of the the spectacular spider-man tv show the the 
the animated series that uh, that version of Liz. There were some aspects of that in her performance as well too. I thought. Um, so I thought they did a great job with her, and um, and I love I love Ned in this movie. I do love Flash, but I did also kind of find myself thinking wistfully and like. I cannot see this version of Flash Thompson becoming Agent Venom like he does in the comic books, which is a great <laughs> arc for Flash Thompson. So, um, and also like the whole thing where he goes through this maturing aspect in the comics, where him and Peter, you know, he starts off as Peter's bully in in college. They're kind of like rivals, but then he, then Peter goes, then Flash ends up enlisting in the military and going off to war and comes back, and then afterwards, like him and Peter. Peter becomes like the only one he from high school he can really rely on. He becomes like, and they become very close friends in the comics. And I think I can't see that same arc in those same ways paying off with um, Tony Rivolori's version of Flash Thompson. So part of it is just me from the comic books thinking wistfully about what we'll probably never get to see. Um, and I think that's a big part of it. But otherwise, I think you make some really good points about why they chose this take for Flash. Yeah, I think that probably, you know, when you have 60 years worth of comic books to kind of <laughs> draw from, you're going to have to make some ad adaptation choices yeah. that will then end up having downstream effects. And I definitely agree mm -hmm. with you that that is a downstream effect. It's a lot easier to believe like Peter's jock bully uh, from high school then developed into a begrudging friendship and then he went to the military and then he became Agent Venom. Uh, Peter's uh, like nerdy, rich bully from his science uh, high school uh, probably less likely to follow down that same path but doesn't mean that mm -hmm. he couldn't do other interesting things unexpectedly right. along the way that has a similar sort of like you know reverse heel turn face turn sort of thing down the road so you know it adaptation choices like that close off some story uh, potential mm -hmm. but it also opens up other ones so no you're right and the MCU has done a, a really good job with that like they've they've made some interesting choices that are very divorced from the comic books but end up working in in other ways I mean I think you know Tony Stark's journey is a is one version that easily comes to mind because you know in the comics he had dealt with the whole alcoholism alcohol alcoholism thing um Whereas in the movies, they didn't really, they, they kind of came close to hinting at it in the first two movies, but then after that, it just kind of, they instead lean more into the PTSD aspects from the first Avengers movie. And that almost like becomes his defining character trait over the course of these movies. And, and also like, you know, he develops this long-term, long-term relationship with Pepper, which never happened in the comic books, but it works for those characters in this setting. And I could easily see them doing something like that with Flash and finding some different way to have that kind of the relationship develop more. Although after No Way Home, it'll be interesting to see how they can do that. But but yeah, I think, yeah, yeah you're right. You make, it, it's a very good point. It Even though we're not getting the same thing we get in the comic books, there are different ways they could play that out. Yeah, like, I mean, you think about you talking about Iron Man more. Mm. Uh, he's such a huge part of this movie, right? And this is the sort of arc that just wouldn't have happened the same way in the comic books. Like, having mm -hmm. Tony as a surrogate father figure to Peter doesn't make as much sense there as it does here. But it works so well here. And it really ends up being this kind of, like, emotional spine that runs throughout, like, the next, like, five years of movies in a lot of mm -hmm. ways that is that really pays dividends right like when you get to like all of the relationship work that starts a little bit in civil war but they don't have a lot of time for it understandably mm -hmm. so they really lay it in here and layer it in here i should say uh 
and you know the idea of having like tony stark who is like the king of daddy issues having to become a father figure mm-hmm. to this kid without a without a father figure is so ripe for opportunity and i feel like uh robert downey jr really must have been so excited uh to to get a, his handle on this sort of material because he really excels at the scenes that he gets um and then it just becomes like his investment and emotional connection to peter becomes this thing that then just you know he, in infinity where obviously uh he loses peter and and the guilt and grief around that ends up p- propelling him to kind of making that ultimate sacrifice in Endgame, and and mm-hmm. so it's it's such a core part of who the I- Iron Man as a character ends up being, and you would never have gotten any of that if you didn't if you held tightly to the relationships as they were established in the comic book universe. Right. So I want to talk about Iron Man too, um, because again, one of the things that really annoys me when you know. Spidey Twitter goes off on this movie is they dismissively call it the Iron Boy movie because they say like, oh, Peter Parker's just, you know, he's just Iron Man's sidekick, basically. And I'm just like, did you did we watch the same movie? Because that's not at all what's (laughs) happening in this film. Um, And I think it so um, one brief correction there. They did. There was a mentor mentee relationship between Tony Stark and Peter Parker in the comic books. It just wasn't at this stage in their lives. So. In the comics, in the early 2000s, um, Spider-Man ends up joining the Avengers, and Tony kind of takes Peter under his wing because Tony's a little bit older. He's, you know, he's they they have similar technological interests and scientific background, so Tony kind of takes Peter under his wing, develops some new tools for him, and he does take on a mentor role for him in those comic books. And I thought moving that to this this time in Peter's life, it makes so much sense in the context of the MCU, because in the comics, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm remembering my comics timeline correctly, Spider-Man actually came out before Iron Man did. So there was no real opportunity for that relationship to happen in the comic books. But in the context of the MCU, you know, the Avengers first appeared when Peter was, you know, in elementary school, probably. So he would have grown up watching Tony Stark as Iron Man and seeing this guy who's using science to become a superhero and making science look cool. Like, I think that would be, that would totally influence him. I could totally see him being influenced and idol and growing up idolizing um, Iron Man in a way in the comics. They, there've been stories that have been done afterwards where they kind of show like Peter growing up idolizing Captain America because Captain America was in world war two. He grew up, reading about Captain America and Captain America comic books and all that. So he grew up idolizing Captain America in the comic books. In the movies, they just, they kind of change that and they make it Iron Man instead, which totally makes sense for this universe. So I thought all that stuff was, and there's also an element of never meet your heroes type of thing in it, right? <laughs> the whole idea right. of like, he's, you know, he, he, he so wants that acceptance of, and they've had different aspects of this type of relationship in the comic books too, right? You know, him wanting the acceptance of some older figure um, and just like that constant striving to find some sort of father figure. Now that, now that Ben is gone, I think they, well, they played that. I'm really not, well. I'm not a comic book expert, as I've said repeatedly, mm. but I do understand that pretty early in the first iteration of Spider-Man back in the sixties, one of his big things was wanting to join the fantastic four to get yeah. validated as a hero. Right. And I feel like that's, they're kind of taking that energy and bringing it into the Avengers here, which Absolutely, makes sense because Fantastic yeah. Four doesn't exist. And Avengers have that status here that would make a lot of sense. And I think that that it captures something that's so great about these 
movies and something that <laughs> it does bother me a little bit when spider-man twitter uh, complains about this because i feel like for the longest time what i heard was you know the other spider-man movies are great but the biggest downside is that you know in the comic books spider-man is just this one guy he's a kid a young adult trying to make a difference in this world of superheroes right and he's mm-hmm. this low status guy like the, the new york tabloids are always on him for making the wrong choice and, and messing things up and he's he's a low status superhero right and the movies can't really do that because he's the only hero in their universe right so he right. has to tackle the world ending events and the opportunity for the mcu is to re-establish that status quo if he is a low status hero who wants to be one of the avengers but can't you know like that's Mm -hmm. what his whole thing is and it's like i feel like these movies then do that perfectly and then people complained about it it was like isn't this what you asked for (laughs) so it, it it drives me nuts when i see all these people suddenly coming out and saying like oh the amazing spider man movies were were so great and you know they're they're and I'm like, well, I was defending those movies back when they first came out, and I was doing it by myself. Where the hell were all of you people? And it's like, it's yeah. all, there's there's this weird thing where it's it's that whole in- nature of Twitter and the internet where it's like you got to be contrary, you got to be a contrarian all the time type of thing is really what I think drives a lot of it. But yeah, it, it yeah. And you're right, you're right. In in fact, the very first issue of Spider-Man Solo comic was him trying to join the Fantastic Four and him breaking into the Baxter Building to try and impress them with his powers, which again is a stupid reckless irresponsible thing to do but that makes sense for that character because he's always doing a stupid irresponsible and reckless thing and then realizing his mistake and then trying to fix it that happens in almost every single spider-man story so when people say that this peter doesn't understand responsibility i'm just like well no he does like you had so accurately said it's just he's still a kid he still has you know that youthful impulsive reckless nature about him and just because he doesn't have the experience to know better and i think that's 100 percent accurate um yeah and i'll also just say we're making movies and tom holland and robert downey jr have great chemistry together and Mm -hmm. every scene that they're in crackles and if you have that use it you know like relax people like we're making a film within this world and we have these incredible assets that work so well together and you don't want to use them because you feel like it's not true to who the character was 50 years ago like give me a break you know (laughs) another aspect that annoys me is when people say that uncle ben doesn't exist in this universe i'm like well no he does it's just that we don't have to see Uncle Ben gets shot in every movie to understand that's part of Peter's backstory. Everybody knows that origin. We've seen it in even, you know, going back to, you mentioned the, the Fox animated series. They never opened up with Uncle Ben's murder. In fact, I don't even think they showed it in the first few episodes. Um, And because they understood that we don't need to show it all the time. People understood this. In fact, in the amazing Spider-Man, that whole, as much as I love Martin Sheen's performance in that movie, the whole sequence where he gets shot just feels so tacked on and by the numbers, like, okay, we have to do this. Let's quickly get it out of the way. Whereas it would have worked so much better if we had opened that movie with Ben already being dead. And then maybe showing Martin Sheen and flash and flashbacks would have worked much better. And this movie, we don't see Ben, but we get hints of him every single time, like in, um, in civil war, right? when Tony asks Peter, why do you do this? And he gives that whole speech, like when you can do the things I can do and you don't, and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you. 
it's a clunky speech, you know, and I know, and it's obvious they were trying to write it without well, using I the love words. That speech. I think it's I, a little I bit love clunky. That speech because I think Tom Holland delivers it so well. He's, he does such, deliver like, well. Yeah. And, and something that I also really like about that speech is that they start, like he starts to then explain more which is like the which is like of course like the fans want to know like mm-hmm. so what hat like tell us more about this ex- and tony being tony just cuts him off immediately he's like yeah 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 i get it okay you want to be mm-hmm. the guy for the stick up for the little guy i got gotcha. you mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like it also kind of subverts it in a in a kind of fun way that's true to those characters mm-hmm. i i love that moment i i think you're right I, they play it really well i do feel like when they were trying to write that they were trying to write it without using the words great power and great responsibility though uh, <laughs> yeah. it, well, it feels like they're the third one they're saving up for the third <laughs> one yeah um but you know that's obviously a reference to uncle ben otherwise what else would he be talking about the bad things happening it's clearly about uncle ben in this movie too when um when uh, Ned say asking him why may doesn't know. And he says, after everything she's been through, she couldn't handle this again. That's a clear reference to uncle Ben. In fact, there was a sequence that was cut from, I don't know if it was ever filmed or if it was, if it was filmed and then cut where the suit that Peter wore is to the dance. They make reference to the fact that it was uncle Ben's suit when he was younger. So there are all these little references to uncle Ben in, you know, far from home. The suitcase has Ben's initials on it. Um, yeah. There are tons of Ben exists in this movie. We just didn't see him get shot on screen, but he absolutely exists. He absolutely died probably because of something Peter did. So all of that is there. It's just, you know, the movie doesn't hold your hand. You can figure this. That's another thing that annoys me when they call it a plot hole. And that's not a plot hole. It's not a plot hole. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's not what a plot hole is. People mm. don't. People need to like go to school and learn what plot holes are because the internet is filled with people calling things plot holes that are explicitly not plot holes. <laughs> it's one of my biggest annoyances. Yeah, I'm like, no, that's the that's not a plot hole. You just don't understand, <laughs> right? Just because just because you doesn't under you don't understand something doesn't mean it's not a plot hole. <laughs> Right, uh, right. Or like they impl- they didn't explicitly say it, but they implied it. Obviously, that was a mistake. It's like, no, maybe they actually oh. meant to imply it. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, let's not talk too much more about bad fans because they yeah, said, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> instead, you know, you mentioned the kind of like the Ned thing, that speech mm-hmm. and with Ned where she he's talking about um, uh, about what Aunt May has gone through. And I love that scene so much because I love the kind of the slow reveal of like Peter crawling onto the ceiling, dropping down, mm-hmm. taking off the suit. And then, and then like Ned being there and being like, Oh my God, you're Spider-Man. And Peter going, no, 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 I'm not. And he's like, you were on the ceiling. This <laughs> is so, so great. And then he's like, you can't tell anybody. He's like, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. There's no way I couldn't tell people. <laughs> it's like such an honest, like this is how your best friend would react if they found mm-hmm. out you were a superhero. And I think like there's, such like a kind of hacky way of doing this where it's all kind of like uh you know oh you need to keep my secret and then it's like tortured and like keep your secret it's like and ned just like punctuates that completely with like a realism that i really Mm -hmm. appreciate also i love what they did with i think this might be my favorite version of aunt may with maybe the possible exception of lily tomlin's version in into the spider verse because i love that version of where she's like where she's like you know peter's uh alfred in a way uh but i did think that she was (laughs) I love Marissa the way Marissa Tomei plays it here because realistically it it doesn't really make sense for Aunt May to be this frail old woman, right? I mean, you know, it's yeah, people need I to mean, I think relax I, with that as well. It's like, well, I think I think it in the makes comics no the, sense that yeah, that Peter would have an 80-year-old aunt uh that he was living with. Like it it should be a woman in her 50s and and taking care of his mm-hmm. her brother or sister's kids. Like that makes sense. It makes total sense. Yeah. In fact, I think the original intention 
of Aunt May in the comics was that she was supposed to be Peter's great aunt. And then over time, they just made it his, you know, the, the, his uncle Ben, uh, Peter's father's brother, as opposed to being, um, being like his, you know, his grand, his grandfather's brother or something like that. And it, it does, you're right. It makes so much sense for Aunt May to be younger. And she is, she plays such a believable version of this character in this type of situation, right? She's just, you know, struggling to get by, struggling to raise this teenage kid on her own. And you see aspects like, you know, she's not his mom. She's, you know, she's trying to be like the cool aunt type of thing where she's like, you know, you know, she's like taking him to the party and stuff like that. And, you know, and she's, she's trying also to the scene when they're like the scene where they, when she, they had the confrontation late in the movie, when she's, mm-hmm. when he's coming back after the fallout with the, with the ferry. I love that scene because that fills in so much of what we are not seeing from May's perspective, mm-hmm. where it's like, she knows that he, she doesn't know he's Spider-Man, but she knows that he is a wreck. He's a mess. He's going through mm-hmm. something and he's lying about it and he's sneaking out of the house and she's trying her best to do what she thinks is right. Maybe do what her parents couldn't do for her by mm-hmm. giving him space to figure this out. But it's, but she's a nervous wreck and she just can't handle this anymore. And she needs him to be honest with her. And it, I love that moment because it just it breathes. There's so much about Aunt May that these movies unfortunately don't give us because they just mm-hmm. don't have the time. And I think Marissa Tomei just brings so much depth to that relationship and makes it feel specific in a way that isn't necessarily on the page. But her performance really helps bring to life. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the line when she I think you made a good point, like that line when she says, I used to sneak out, too. That says it all right there. It it completely, I was completely right with you when you were saying all that stuff. Like, well, maybe she's trying to do this in a way that her parents didn't do with her. And that line, just in that one line, she says it all right there. Like, I'm trying to do this differently than my parents did it. And just like her trying to struggle with that. And I, I see this as a father myself, right? Like, you know, my kids are very young, but still I see that with like, you know, I don't want to do things the way my parents do, but you know, I still got to lay down the law in some way. So there is that that push and pull. I totally get that. And that moment, it makes so much sense the way she reacts. And there's also that level of like, I'm not your mom. I don't, I'm not trying to be your mom. I'm not Mm. trying to replace your mom, but I am a person who's here and who cares about you and who sits up at night wondering if you're okay. And I need you to respect that. Like there's that Mm. tension there, which is really complicated. And this movie unfortunately doesn't have enough time for, but the little glimpses of it that we get, I think are great. And it makes me wish that we got more of it throughout these films instead of like in front where it's just like John Favreau was her boyfriend for uh, a whole movie. And then it's like, okay, it's like, I feel like when I look at the Marissa Tomei arc, it's a real missed opportunity because there's so much there and she really wants to communicate it in this movie. And she just doesn't get the opportunities often enough, but what she gets phenomenal. Again, that's why I say like the best way to handle Spider-Man would be like in a TV show. Like if we get like, you know, six or 12 episodes of like Peter, going around trying to be in high school while also dealing with the occasional supervillain and then maybe cap it off with a big budget movie uh, or something like that. I think that would be the perfect way to handle this character. Um, but unfortunately, you know, he's what he's Marvel's arguably most recognizable character. So we're not going to get that um, as much yeah, as I might it's want. Like it. a, it's a question of both like budget for TV. It would be hard to mm-hmm. execute this character. And then also just, uh, like the economic opportunity of a Spider-Man movie is just significantly higher than a Spider-Man right. television show. And that's yeah, like yeah. the world that we live in, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but, another uh, thing too. I know it, I have, to, 
we have to, I know we have to wrap up soon, but I wanted to quickly just talk about some of the set pieces before we go, because there's okay. been, there's a couple of important moments that happen here from an action perspective that are really interesting. And I think sets this movie apart from other superhero movies. We really only get one big, like supervillain superhero fight, which is the climax. And even in that, it's mostly kind of like Peter trying to stop a robbery, not like beat up the bad guy, you know, and then that's exactly what I was going to say next. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, perfect. And then the other scenes that are big set pieces, it's like he like this, this, the fairy set piece where he's trying to, you know, arrest these guys, basically. But mm. the majority of the action is around trying to save everybody from the fairy disaster that he created. Mm. <laughs> and then the Washington Monument thing, which is has no villain in it at all. It's just this sort of like accident that he, again, created by accident uh, and trying to rescue people. And I just love the fact that this movie is so invested in establishing him as a character who is most concerned about saving people, not punching the bad guy, Mm -hmm. uh, and and especially not killing the bad guy, which is unfortunately what happens in all of the other Spider-Man movies, basically, which is not really true to who that character is. Yeah, absolutely. I think the what I love about this movie and what kind of annoyed me about a lot of the other movies is that. It's always, we got to save the city in some way, right? It's like there's some big event that's going to happen. It's going to destroy the whole city. Whereas this one, it's just, no, I'm just trying to stop this supervillain from stealing a bunch of high-tech shit. That's ultimately what it is. It's not about saving the city. It is just about, you know, stopping this robbery. And it goes to show that not every superhero movie needs to have those stakes where the whole city is going to be destroyed or the whole world's going to be destroyed. We can have a movie where it's just about stopping this plot and it can still be very entertaining, can still be just as thrilling, can still feel just as high stakes. Yeah, it's because it's high stakes for him. He's on the side mm. of a plane. He's trying to 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 keep this bad thing from happening without having his girlfriend's dad die in the process. It, like I don't know how you if you were a real person, that's as high stakes as it gets. You know, you don't need a giant beam shooting into the sky, <laughs> letting mm-hmm. demons fly through the city. Like you, it's if you can sell the story, if you can sell the emotion of the story it's going to feel high stakes no matter what. And I just love that this movie had the courage to be like, no, this is a teen hero. We're going to give him a low stakes story that feels Mm -hmm. high stakes to him. And then they executed that flawlessly. Yeah. Well, also I think too, the, and you know, I know everybody wants Spider-Man as an Avenger and all that, but I've always been against that idea. And I think this movie really makes a strong argument for why Spider-Man should not be an Avenger, not because he, he's not good enough, not because he hasn't earned it. None of that is true. Like he's absolutely, you know, good enough to be up there. But that speech he gives to Tony and happy at the end, when he says, you know, I want to be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I want to stay close to the ground and fight for the little guy. And I think they smartly tied that in with, you know, the lesson he learns from, from the vulture where, you know, he's telling them, look, those, you know, the Avengers and all that, they don't care about guys like us. And it also made him, Peter also realizes, yeah, well, the Avengers aren't notice, aren't paying attention to little guys. They're also not noticing the little threats like the Vulture, right? That's why the Vulture was able to go for eight years without any attention from the feds. So I think he's Although realized... Really five years. Five years. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right, right. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> you right I forgot about that. Years, but it, yeah. it's five years. <laughs> but it, it, makes a, it makes a very good point, though, that, you know, if there's, you know, and I remember um, there's one... 
my late co-host Derek always talked about this one issue of Avengers where they were looking for Spider-Man and someone said to, you know, why are we bothering? Why are we wasting time trying to find Spider-Man when he's, when he's missing? You know, don't we have better things to do? And I think it was, it was either Iron Man or Captain America who said like Spider-Man takes care of the stuff that we, we don't. So like for us to be able to take care of the scroll invasions and Thanos and all that, we need some, we need someone who's being able to who's being able to operate on the ground and take care of the stuff that we can't notice. And this movie makes that argument, right? When he says, "I just want yeah, to be a friendly neighbor," we need somebody to we need somebody to stop the Grand Theft bicycle. You know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that makes such a great argument. And also, I th- I feel like it's it's hard to imagine Peter as this put upon, you know, struggling middle-class guy when he's got Tony Stark on speed dial too. So that's another aspect of it too. I think that's why the idea of Peter being a local hero who just tries to stay to the ground works so much better than him being a member of the Avengers. And I think this movie makes that argument very well. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I think, you know, in the Avengers movies, I like to see him there because he's a great actor and a great character, but I agree from like a storytelling perspective, it always feels better when he's, on the ground handling things the way that we see him in this movie. Well, I think and I will Infinity say one War, thing that we... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. That No, well, just one thing that goes towards that is, and we kind of allied it, we went over this moment, and I want to just double back to it because it's such a core part of this film, the kind of the moment when he's under the rubble, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, this homo- it's an homage to a classic comic book that I'm aware of that then has been homaged in other comic books for like his whole history of him being under the rubble and seeing his face and the mask and the reflection and everything like that. But in the movie itself, in this movie, it's this fantastic moment where he's literally like he is a scared kid. He thinks he's going to die. He's screaming for help, right? He does. This is way over his head. This is he has gotten himself. He's been making mistakes throughout the whole movie, underestimating the situation. And now he has a literal building on top of him and he is panicking. And then he sees himself in the mirror in, in his himself in the reflection in that mask and says, I'm going to be Spider-Man. Like, come on. And he does that kind of like, come on, Spider-Man. Come on, Spider-Man. And he takes on that mantle. And he becomes the hero that he needs to be. Not by proving things to everyone else. Not by making Tony Stark happy. Not by becoming an Avenger. But by proving to himself that he has the fortitude to rise from the rubble and save the day. And I just, that's just the best Spider-Man moment, I think, across all of the films that we've gotten. And it's just, it's excellent. It's just so great. And it's a great kind of combination of paying homage to the comic books, having a great actor in a great role and giving him the material and having the whole movie built to that moment that works so well. 100% co-signed. And what I love too about that moment when he sees his his face in the mask, like that's that's an iconic image of like the the Peter Parker with like half his face as Spider-Man, half his face as Peter Parker. And, you know, it works in the comic books because they they're showing, you know, it's artistic license and all that kind of stuff. And it's a way to show to the audience that he's he's struggling with those two sides of his identity and working it into the story where like half the mask is submerged and he sees his face's reflection in the water. And it's just such a brilliant way of showcasing it, just like too the um, the idea of the eyes moving. I never you know, in whenever I'd see that happen in the comic books, like his eyes move and I'm just like, okay, that's ridiculous. Those, those lenses can't move like that. Um, and then after watching the, the other, mo- the, the five movies that preceded this one, you're just kind of like, okay, well there's, there feels like there's something missing in Spidey's face. Cause those lenses can't move. And so when in civil war, they worked into it. So where the lenses are mechanical and they can adjust based on, you know, how much sensory input, that was such a brilliant 
in-universe way to be able to give him expressive eyes in these movies. And I thought that worked so well. It it, it helped add so much to the to the character and the performance. Yeah, I fully agree. It's just it and it works. It just conveys a lot visually that mm-hmm. I think is necessary and it also gives us an opportunity to leave him in the damn mask for longer than the mm-hmm. other movies do because yeah. in the other movies every time you have an emotional moment, he takes off his mask so that way he can actually act. And in this movie, uh, they don't do that. They really only take his mask off in a meaningful moment once right at the end when he's mm-hmm. trying to save Vulture and I think they save it in a way that really pays off and it makes that moment land much more. Like when you think about like the Tobey Maguire movie, movies he takes that mask off every single scene it feels like Mm -hmm. and it's like and it just breaks the reality of who that character is supposed to be so i think it just it works really well from a storytelling perspective as well as also feeling like true to the visual sensibility of who that character is supposed to be although that did annoy me in the avengers movies when the mask is constantly coming off (laughs) and i think that's one of the that's one of the downsides that's one of the downsides of them having the the nano suits is now they can easily take the mask off whenever they want (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, but she, he's in space. Yeah. He doesn't need to protect his eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, I think overall, like I, I, I think yeah, I think I would say that this is this is this is definitely my favorite Spider-Man movie. I think it combines all those different aspects of what you want a great Spider-Man story to have, and it's got the the Peter Parker struggling with his life and struggling to balance the the superhero aspect with the with his regular day-to-day life. You've got the supervillain that's, that's, you know, you know, somewhat comically coincidentally connected to Peter's personal life as well. And, and you've got him just, you know, being a local superhero, basically. I think this, this movie completely captures what I love about Spider-Man. Yeah. And for me, I think it might not be the best movie starring Peter Parker as Spider-Man, but it is the best Spider-Man movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that makes sense. <laughs> it does. It does. Yeah. 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 All right. All right, Alex. So, well, thanks. Thanks so much for, for coming on. So do you have any final things you want to say yeah. about this movie? I, I just wanted to also briefly compliment Michael G. Kino's score. I think it's fantastic. Um, he had a really steep hill trying to kind of like, you know, uh, one up Danny Elfman in the original. And I think mm-hmm. that he did just an excellent job. It really works throughout, like just from the start of the movie where you get the Spider-Man theme over the Avengers, like Marvel studios logo. Um, and then off to the races throughout the whole film. I think it's just an expertly uh, crafted score that I really, really like. I think it's underrated, honestly. That instrumental version of the Spider-Man theme is just perfect. I, I thought that was, I, when I saw this in the theater, like when they start, and they started playing that theme, I I got chills when they started playing that theme, and yeah. I wasn't even a fan of yeah, that old, old cartoon. But that still, like that theme is so iconic. Um, yeah. Also, one other thing I wanted to mention that I forgot too. I love that they got Jennifer Connelly to play Karen, the the suit lady in this, because yeah. um, for anyone who doesn't know, um, Jennifer Connelly is married to Paul Bettany, who you know now he's Vision, but before that he was Jarvis. So bringing in that you know meta aspect to it, I thought was a nice little touch. And I was kind of disappointed that we didn't see her in any of the the other movies. Yeah, I think she works really well here in moments where Peter really needs somebody to talk to, but just doesn't have anybody. And in the comics, maybe or in the cartoon, it would have just been like this voiceover narration that doesn't wouldn't have felt at place here. You get him having someone to talk to, but I think it's also the right call in future movies to not have her back because I just don't I because I just don't think that he needs to have a voice in his suit telling him what is happening across the street. You know, I feel like that's not necessarily who spider-man should be so i i like i think it's very well used here and it's i think it's very smart that they don't continue to use her in the future even though the performance is great uh, 
Yeah, you make a good point. I mean, I, I can definitely understand why it would be not necessary in the other movies. Although I, I just love Jennifer Connelly and I want to see her in anything. Sure. So. Well, I mean, you know, see Top Gun Maverick for why she is the most exactly. Yeah, well said. Her era. Oh God, <laughs> such an underrated actress. I feel. Um. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show. Why don't you tell people where they can find your podcast and the other stuff you do? Yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, you can follow me. Um, a good place to find all of my links is on Twitter. I don't really post that much there anymore, but I do like to keep up where you can find me over there. So, uh, that's at media thinkings on Twitter. Uh, I have a uh, letterbox which is a which is a film specific social media site um where you can follow all of my written reviews and comic book uh rankings over there um that's also at media thinkings on letterboxd um my film podcast is actually coming to an end so you can definitely check out our back episodes um at cinema joe's on twitter cinema joe's on all major podcast platforms but we're not gonna be putting out any new episodes moving forward uh but you can definitely subscribe to pop break tv to listen to my tv podcast which i didn't discuss here and you can also talk uh follow pop break today where you can find my bill versus the mcu podcast which comes out uh the second tuesday of every month so definitely check that out as well okay great we'll we have did an episode on all of the tom holland spider-man movies <laughs> okay yeah so definitely check that out uh and uh we'll have links to that in the show notes so um we'll make sure to uh send me an email afterwards we'll talk off mic and make sure we get all those yep. links set up for you um but yeah everybody else check those out in the show notes check out those shows alex thanks again for coming on uh welcome back anytime you'd like to talk about mcu or anything other anything else um Anyway, that does it for this episode of Superhero Cinephiles. SuperheroCinephiles.com is the website. We are Super Cinema Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm also on Hive under Per Constantine, P-E-R Constantine, and hopefully going to be using that more since Elon Musk is a psychopath. So, um, so you can find <laughs> us there. And yeah, let us know what you think. And if you subscribe to the Patreon, you get these episodes a week in advance, and you also get access to the Superhero Cinephiles Book Clubs episodes, where we talk about comic books and graphic novels about once a month. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. If you enjoy the Superhero Cinephiles, then you'll also love my companion podcast, the Superhero Cinephiles Book Club. All my Patreon subscribers get access to this exclusive podcast, where I review superhero comics and graphic novels. Not sure what comics you want to read next or what you should dive into? I've got you covered on that. I'll be doing reviews, recommendations, and also talking to you about useful entry points if you're interested in reading some comics but don't know where you should start. Plus, you'll get access to all episodes of the main show a week before everyone else. On all of this, for as little as just a dollar a month, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash supercinemapod and you can sign up at any subscription amount to get started. Thanks so much for your support, and please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and as always... Good night, good evening, God bless.